Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I just had to open the show with Little Richard today. He passed over the weekend. In 1981, I spent one of the more memorable afternoons of my life in the company of Little Richard. Um, who was Well, anyway, it's a long story. It's going to be in my newsletter this week. Never mind. We've got a lot of work to do here today. I hope it's uh, not just work but fun for you. Uh, we're going to, in the second and third segments of the show, we're going to have uh, Vincent Racaniello. Uh, he is the host of a show, a podcast to which I have become unhealthily addicted. It's called This Week in Virology. Um, he is a virologist, a uh, professor of microbiology and immunology. And well, anyway, we'll, we'll explain it all to you then. But we're also very excited about this segment of the show. We're going to talk to Evan Osnos, who writes for The New Yorker. He's the author of The Age of Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith in New China, which won the 2014 National Book Award for Nonfiction. So before we bring Evan in, let me just tell you a quick story. So in 20, because it, it, it bears upon what we're going to talk about. In 2018, early 2018, I was teaching a course uh, at Yale, a seminar in political journalism and political media in the 21st century. And so it's like 16, 17, 18 students. And so one day, Jeb Bush showed up for a class. Uh, I mean, we knew he was <laughs> But he showed up uh, and he sat in on class for like two hours and was part of the conversation. And um, so this is early 2018. And, you know, he st still seemed a little shell shocked. Uh, and the overall impression was uh, of a person who had prepared all of his life for like a major tennis tournament, only to find out in the early rounds that the rules had been changed in some vexing and capricious way. And Jeb's position was essentially that if anybody had told him about these new rules, you know, where you could actually reach across the net and strike somebody with your tennis racket, uh, he would have adapted and won. But to a person, to a student, my students thought he was wrong. And in a way that is laid out, I think, uh, in, very well in, um, in Evan's article, there is this sea change that's gone on. And, and for people like Jeb Bush, who grew up in places like Greenwich and grew up with a very specific understanding of a social contract, it might be a little bit different from my understanding of a social contract, but it's still part of a social contract. Uh, there was no real preparation for the shift that took place in the nominating process in 2016 and continues on unto today when places like Greenwich that were formerly enclaves of this very kind of old style version of republicanism uh, have um, have shifted uh, and uh, not to a person, not 100 percent, but have become far more supportive uh, of President Trump uh, as the horse that they back than one might have expected. So Evan Osnos, sorry for the long windedness, um, but uh, it's a terrific article. And maybe you, you can just start and do a much better job than I just did of setting up the premise here. 
Oh, sure. Uh, thanks. I, uh, I mean, I thought you set up the premise exactly right, as a matter of fact. I, look, I come to this with a specific interest, which is I grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut. And so I grew up with an understanding of what I thought the Republican Party represented in our part of the country, which is to say it was a it was very much the Bush family terrain. And that grew all the way, not just out of obviously Jeb and George W, but not even just George H.W., but really out of his, their, his father, Prescott Bush, who'd been the U.S. Senator from Connecticut, people remember. And, and he was also the, you know, he was also a Greenwich politician of significant standing. He was the moderator of the RTM, the representative town meeting. So those values of this, in many ways, kind of starchy, uh, old New England republicanism was how I thought of Greenwich Republican values, which is to say Prescott Bush was to the left of his party on civil rights, on welfare, on birth control. He was very much in the kind of Nelson Rockefeller mold of what we think of as Rockefeller Republicans, country club Republicans who are socially liberal, fiscally conservative, but certainly not absolutist. They believe, I mean, there was a famous moment when Prescott Bush beseeched his colleagues in the Senate fellow Republicans, he said, look, we have to invest in things like science, research, defense, education uh, in order to invest in this country. And that means raising taxes. So there was that set of values. And then I looked upon a single piece of data in 2016 with bafflement, which was that Donald Trump won the Greenwich Republican primary. And then I, well, not just Greenwich, actually turned out he won 20 out of 23 Republican primaries in Fairfield County. And I realized at that point, I had a lot of very serious work to do to begin to understand what had changed fundamentally in the political firmament in my hometown. Right. And just to even amplify what you're saying, too, you know, prominent Connecticut Republicans were people like Stu McKinney and the successor of his in that same congressional seat, Chris Shays, uh, Lowell Weicker. Right. When you go way back, Lowell Weicker, of course, was a prominent Republican uh, officeholder uh, from Connecticut. Um, and, and I covered, as a young reporter covering the state capitol, a, a group of Republican legislators who also fit that mold. They would It would be difficult to imagine them supporting the policies uh, of Donald Trump or for them to consider Donald Trump intellectually and psychologically fit to occupy the Oval Office. I, I can't imagine those men and women feeling as they did. I did. I would put Nancy Johnson a little yeah. bit more conservative than that in that category. So, Evan, there's sort of two groups of people who seem like they've made a devil's bargain. One of them, a little less Connecticut focused, would be sort of evangelicals and, and sort of um, socially conservative, morally conservative Republicans who basically are looking for federal judges who will obstruct abortion and weigh in favorably to, from their point of view on a, on a host of other issues. And they'll overlook all of Donald Trump's um, warts. They'll, they're going to ride that horse um, because they're going to mm-hmm. get they're ultimately what they want. But the group that you're looking at is another group that where it was less clear how this is going to work. And these are basically people who are often referred to as the one percenters or they're the hedge fund people. They're the Wall Street people. Uh, they are not so interested in religious morality. They're interested uh, in consolidating even more <laughs> of the nation's wealth in a smaller group of hands. So it wasn't immediately clear that Trump is the right horse for them to ride. How, how did they wind up making that decision? 
Well, exactly as you said, there was a you know, there was a very clear sense in 2015 and 2016. Just to remind ourselves, you know, people in Greenwich, if you talk to them about the Republican field by and large, you know, people were they talked about John Kasich, they talked about Marco Rubio, uh, Leora Levy, who's a, a prominent Republican fundraiser in Greenwich. She wrote a piece in the Greenwich Time, an op-ed that was very sort of stinging about Donald Trump, called him vulgar and offensive. She said he's absolutely not the right person for this party and and so on. And you also heard from many people in town that they said, look, we know Donald Trump because we've done business with him. We don't trust him. We would never deal with this guy. So fast forward to the point when he begins to consolidate control and something profound had changed. And you began to see that people started to describe the choice, the Republican choice, but ultimately the general election in very narrow terms. You started to hear people saying it's really just in the end about economics. It's about tax cuts and it's about regulation and who's going to do the most for me. I spoke to somebody named Thomas Petterfee who owned the largest estate in Greenwich uh, in 2016, and he donated to Trump's candidacy. He donated to the inauguration. I asked him, I said, why did you vote for him, for Donald Trump? And he said, look, I don't think the personality issues I'm paraphrasing here are they don't matter. All that matters in the end is whether somebody is going to put more regulation or less regulation onto American business. And that's why I voted for Donald Trump. And, you know, interesting, I think it's worth pointing out, um, sometimes the cliche that we imagine about the Trump voter is, well, it's the sort of struggling working class voter, not only in the South, but maybe all over the country. And maybe that's what accounts for the fact that Donald Trump could win in so many places in Fairfield County in the Republican primary. But when you looked at the precinct returns in the general election, you saw that actually the highest vote counts for Donald Trump didn't come from the working class or middle class neighborhoods. Uh, they became they came from the backcountry of Greenwich, the, you know, frankly, the sort of wealthiest parts of town. And that for me was a sign that there was something going on in the voting booth. People were pulling the lever for somebody that publicly they had been much less comfortable talking about uh, supporting. And that was that seemed to me like a, a, a an essential piece of understanding not only how Donald Trump got elected, but then how he has stayed there, how he survived impeachment, how he has managed to maintain the kind of support within the Republican Party uh, that you see reflected in polls that can sometimes be baffling to people who don't support. Right. And, and I want to come back, circle back to another point about this, but we should note that he kind of delivered, right? I mean, you know, even even <laughs> right. now, even right. now with the COVID crisis in full bloom, uh, although the S and P is still down, I think about thirteen percent from its pre-COVID high. The Nasdaq one hundred is now only five percent below all time highs. Um, you know, I could go on and on, but you know, even in right. this environment where he has clearly mismanaged the public health uh, aspect of his job to a point of substantially increasing the sickness and death toll. He kind of has so far, or somebody has, made it clear that even though the economy's in really bad shape, the part of the economy that the people you're talking about right now care about most passionately is not too bad considering what's happened. That's correct. And, you know, his tax bill in 2017, we can now calculate what the effects have been for different segments of the population. And it's now clear in the data that for the uh, for the richest taxpayers in America, it has delivered on average about $43,000 per taxpayer in terms of tax breaks for people at the bottom of the income 
uh, bracket, it is uh, it has delivered one hundred and twenty dollars. So it is not a this is not a you know, this is not a uh, a wild uh, supposition that we're making here. This is just reflected in the data. He has delivered very explicitly for the people who he said he would, which is to say for um, people who depend on the stock market for their living. And, and that gets to an important change in in the part of the country we're talking about. When I you know, when I was growing up in Greenwich and all the way sort of before that, uh, you know, it, through sort of the, the meat of the 20th century, the kind of heyday of the middle of the 20th century, it was generally uh, there was always sort of some piece of Wall Street there. But it was really mostly these kinds of industrial executives. That was the heart of the that was the heart of the CEO class uh, that lived in places like, uh, you know, southwestern Connecticut. And what you saw from the 80s, the 90s, and then certainly in the first two, two decades of this century has been what so many you know, scholars call financialization. We've all heard about it, but it's in clearest terms. It's the fact that uh, in the early 1990s, the financial sector in the United States took home about 4% of corporate profits a year. Today, they take home about 23%. That's the finance sector. This is a piece that was supposed to always be a facility for the real economy. And instead, it's become in many ways an economy unto itself that generates enormous returns for the people who are uh, at the top of it. So uh, I want to circle back here. I mean, things like the Trump ascendancy do not happen by themselves. And so what happen has has to happen is that a group of pollsters and consultants and strategists and other behind-the-scenes party people have to decide, yes, we could craft a non-traditional candidate that would be attractive not only to the heartland, but to the donor class, the people we're talking about now, Evan. So maybe you could just say a little bit about how that did happen. Yeah, that's actually literally what happened in this case. And it's not something that's gotten very much attention, but I found kind of astonishing. I mean, it's not, not much attention until recently, I suppose. But uh, there was this project uh, that was launched in 2012, it was, and it was called the, the Smith Project. It was named for the idea of that the Republican Party, after losing to Barack Obama for his reelection campaign, they were people, donors at the top of the party who realized something is going wrong in the way we're picking candidates. Mitt Romney was, why didn't he beat Barack Obama? And they wanted to know. So they began this big polling operation called the Smith Project because they said, what we realize is we need a Mr. Smith type. We need a Mr. Smith from outside Washington who can go in and blow it up. And what they found in their polling was that if they were somebody out there with a lot of name recognition, maybe with a lot of money of his own, who could run against Washington, that that person could actually flip things upside down. And interesting to me, the money for that polling operation came from a Greenwich resident named Lee Hanley. And Lee Hanley was a Republican donor without much public profile, but had made a, a series of essential contributions to the rise of the conservative movement over the last generation. And, and he had given to things like Turning Point USA, which we now know of as the sort of conservative organization for young people. He had uh, funded Roger Stone and Paul Manafort in the early years of their of their uh, transformation of Washington's public relations and lobbying. And now he had turned his significant assets. He was a, made his money in bricks and oil. He turned that on this project of taking an outside candidate and making him the Republican nominee. And what they found in their data was that when Donald Trump entered the field, he was by all measurements, the person they were looking for. And they never imagined it was be him. They thought really, I, I guess we didn't think it was going to be him. But once we realized that's 
the guy who's matching all our criteria, they threw their support behind him. They attracted people like Steve Bannon, uh, who became, of course, Trump's strategist, and the Mercer family, which donated its significant hedge fund fortune in support of Trump's candidacy. And that powerhouse drew in other patrons, other donors. And that's in many ways the sort of um, behind the scenes story of how Donald Trump was able to vault to the head of the party uh, before the public recognized what was happening. Right. So and they got a lot of what they wanted, as we said before, and also just even in terms of, I mean, I think this kind of helps explain why, you know, not only did Shake Shack and the L.A. Lakers apply for small business forgivable loans, but like telecom companies and huge auto chains and everybody knew, you know, right. there's a there's a bailout there for you. Not the first bailout you've gotten, but there's a bailout waiting there for you. And and, you know, it's possible even to kind of defy rules and logic to get it. But, you know, Evan, one question that I had reading your article, and I've had it a lot anyway, is, is this a dragon that's slowly eating its own tail? So in 2018, we saw uh, a woman named Alex Bergstein win the, the state Senate seat from Greenwich. Now, Evan, the last time that seat turned blue, King George III <laughs> wanted it painted. You know? Uh, exactly right. I mean, exactly it, right. And right next door, a young guy named Will Haskell got the next door Senate seat, which is sort of Redding, New Canaan, you know, comparable kinds of stuff. Uh, right. a, a representative named Lucy Dathan won uh, the rep seat that's, I think it's New Canaan, Norwalk. These are all Democrats who are going into Republican strongholds. I have no idea what kind of election we're going to have in 2020. I mean, how voting is going to happen or whether it'll be a normal process. If it is a normal process, I don't see why they wouldn't hold those seats, particularly because there's widespread dissatisfaction with exactly this choice, with exactly the policies embodied by Donald Trump. So, you know, yep. is it possible this was a mistake? <laughs> yeah, I think I think your instinct on this, of course, is right. I see you, you see across the board um, a series of gains by Democrats, partly driven or as part of the blue wave in 2018. But, you, you know, you saw some of that even before in, in municipal races, in local races or in, in uh, you know, special elections. Um, one caveat that is worth keeping in mind is that in 2019, you saw Greenwich Republicans take back the uh, town finance board also take back the first selectman seat or hold on to the first selectman seat, I should say. So in some ways, they arrested the, the blue wave for a time. I think broadly speaking, there's just no question. There's a huge amount of enthusiasm and, and activism among Democrats in Connecticut and elsewhere. Um, and that probably positions them well for 2020. But I think what is interesting is to note that there that nothing is a fait accompli. And there was a real feeling among Democrats in 2018, as you said, after Alex Bergstein won, after others had claimed these seats that Democrats hadn't held since Herbert Hoover, uh, all of a sudden they thought, well, okay, clearly the Trump bloom is off the rose. And that was not the case. And Republicans came back quite strongly in the next year. So, and what I've found recently over the course of the last few months, talking to people in town on, on, on the subject of Donald Trump is that if you talk to Republican operatives and activists, they are not renouncing him by and large, they are saying, look, I don't know. I mean, this is literally in the story, people saying, not only am I still voting for him, I also don't know anybody who voted for him last time who's not voting for him this time. Um, I think that is uh, partly a reflection of what we all, you know, we all know about the sort of tribal identities we've adopted in our politics. It's very hard to tell somebody these days that you've, that you've changed your view. Um, 
But I think it's also a reflection of what you mentioned earlier, which is that Donald Trump has delivered for his constituency. And it's not always the constituency we talk about. It's not necessarily people in, you know, in, in parts of the country that are suffering. In many cases, it's people at the very top of the income ladder um, who think that he is continuing to uh, to to, div- to give them dividends, you know, uh, and I think that's important to recognize. Yeah, and Evan, I think your piece helps explain, uh, I'd like to know what you think about this, but helps helps explain why in February, with a burgeoning pandemic, mounting public health and scientific evidence that we had a real problem here, we were headed for uh, exactly what we've wound up getting, that Donald Trump continued to minimize it, continued to seem more concerned with yeah. with marketing this kind of roseate version uh, of the American situation. And, and I assume an awful lot of that is he's talking to a different audience. He's talking to the audience of the people that you wrote about who expect him to do something like that, even in the teeth of a pandemic, do what you can to keep the stock, stock market and attendant sectors of the economy functioning. Yeah, I think that in, in many ways, we underappreciated how much you know, Donald Trump never ran a public company. He ran a private company, but his entire identity was wrapped up in the performance of Wall Street, as a, and that was his political identity. And he rode it for the first three years of his presidency. Um, everything was about whether the stock market was doing well. And so when it came time to making crucial decisions that were that would have required him to make short-term sacrifices in order to achieve long-term security and health security, we all know now that he deferred those choices. He didn't make those choices. He it t- tried to you know, bluff it out, ride it out, pretend that this was going to go away. And I, this is not me making it up here. We've all heard the quotes of him saying that the quote, the number of cases are going to go down. It's going to disappear like a miracle. And what I've heard interestingly, you know, recently, Colin, I was going to say people in the business world, you know, they say Donald Trump was, um, you know, he was always in the sales and marketing world. That was his business. He, you know, he didn't, for the last few years of his career, in addition to being on television, he wasn't building all that much. And so he was always a salesman of the highest order. And so he finds himself now colliding with something that can't be sold or marketed. And that's the, the sort of brutal reality of public health issues and uh, the kind of cold, hard facts of science. And that's the collision between his abilities and his instincts that uh, that is sort of on display for us all now. So Evan Osnos, the perfect coda for your piece uh, happened, I think, maybe after it went, yes, definitely after it went to print, which is that uh, George W. Bush put out this kind of web commercial kind of thing. I don't even know what exactly to call it, but it was this video piece just extolling the virtues of unity and patriotism and the notion of mutual cooperation and respect to get through the, this incredible challenge, the greatest of our time. And Donald Trump immediately interpreted it, even though he wasn't mentioned in it to, or even alluded to it, it, immediately interpreted it absolutely correctly, in my opinion, as a direct attack on him. Right. <laughs> and right. I mean, so I don't know. I, I'll let you just run with that one as we get ready to, uh, to wrap up here. It's such an interesting point. It's, you know, in some ways, Donald Trump. You know, he has no interior life. It's all exterior. We see it all. If he is feeling anxious or vulnerable or insecure or under attack, he announces it. And that is, you know, this is a case where you had, the Bush family has been now in, in about every conceivable way has been clear that they don't support Donald Trump. You know, uh, they've leaked all kinds of little comments over the last 
over the last few years, including George W. Bush's comment right after the inaugural speech from Donald Trump, in which he said that was some weird stuff. And I'm using a euphemism there. So, you know, the they come from they come from completely different traditions, and I think you're beginning to hear sort of bits of that old those old Republican Party muscles flaring and saying, um, if we're going to try to hold on to what's left of the party we once knew, this is our moment to do it. Uh, I'm not sure that's possible. I think the party has been transfigured in a fundamental way in the image of Donald Trump. And you see it not only at the very top, but you see it across the members of the Senate and the House who fall in line with him completely. And of course, you see it broadly across the electorate who support him at remarkably high levels. Um, and it, will take a, it would take a, an active nature uh, to, to really profoundly change the Republican Party from the direction it's moved. All right. Uh, that's Evan Osnes. You have to read this piece uh, in The New Yorker uh, about why Greenwich Republicans cast their lot uh, in possibly a devil's bargain with Donald Trump. Evan, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks and for having me. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back uh, and I'm going to get to talk to the host of This Week in Virology. And I'm excited. I'm addicted to this podcast. Another day that don't end. Another ship going out. Another day of anger, bitterness, and doubt. I know how it happened. I saw it begin. I opened my heart to the world, and the world came So if you read my columns or my newsletter, or I think I've probably mentioned it a few times on here, too, I have become addicted to a podcast called This Week in Virology, TWIV for short. Uh, and uh, it is uh, a mix of virology, obviously, and kind of shop talk among scientists, a few dad jokes. You might need to know what 229E is in order to get the dad joke. Um, but I, what I find listening to this, sometimes I don't know what's happening, what they're talking about. And uh, our guest here can be saying something like, so, Susan, aside from phosphodiesterase and exoribonuclease, are there any other interferon antagonists in the MHV? And I don't know what that means, but I don't, what I know is I'm, I'm so reassured by the fact that there are these people talking about all this stuff that they have been studying for decades and that here in this terrible pandemic, in this moment of great helplessness that we feel, there are these scientists. This is not their first coronavirus rodeo. They've been looking at this stuff for a long time and trying to understand it. Uh, and a lot of times they do talk in a way that is very, very understandable to me. And they've got a guy named Daniel Griffin, a clinician who uh, everybody should hear his reports every time he makes them. Uh, so anyway, without further ado, you can tell I'm kind of a gushy fanboy here, but uh, Vincent Racaniello is here. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology in the College of Physicians and Surgeons uh, at Columbia University. And he is the host, although the host is kind of a complicated thing, because sometimes there are like six hosts and one guest, uh, as was the case with the Susan Weiss show recently. Uh, but he is the host among hosts uh, of This Week in Virology. Very happy to have you with us, sir. Thank you. And I have to say, that's probably one of the best introductions I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> well, file that away. So I'm going to ask, begin by asking you a very 
blunt question or a basic question. What is virology or what is a virologist? As if, you know, we see on television a lot of epidemiologists and public health experts. This is a different thing. And maybe you can just quickly explain what it is. Well, virologists, uh, and I am one of them, we're people that study those things called viruses. We bring them into the lab. We try and figure out how they work. Sometimes we help figure out how to prevent them from causing disease in people. But we've been around since, uh, I would say, the late 1800s, which is when viruses were first discovered, uh, doing our thing. So we're not doctors. We're not medical doctors, although some medical doctors are virologists. We're not epidemiologists. That's a different thing. Uh, We study the viruses themselves and much of what we're able to do today about this current pandemic is uh, because of what we do, I believe. I I wanted to ask you very specifically about SARS-CoV-2 and and what it's like and maybe what it's not like. In other words, on the show, I've heard one scientist, I think in the most recent episode, jokingly call it wimpy, but most of the other times that people refer to it as having formidable armor or armaments to ward off attempts to inhibit or destroy it. I've read other uh, microbiologists talk about how it, it infects people in a somewhat different way than, than any of its predecessors. What is it about SARS-CoV-2 as a almost life form that makes it special? Uh, there's, In my view, if you want me to nail down one thing and i can do that if there's one thing that makes it special is that it's to humans it's brand new we've never seen it before and because of that none of us can prevent it from infecting us Uh, so it's spreading around the world it's infecting everyone it can find and it's causing damage now someone one of my colleagues may say but vincent so was sars one that was brand new to the world and that's a good comparison because we were able to get rid of SARS-1. We were able to banish it from the face of the earth. So obviously there are some differences. But when SARS-1 began, we thought it was pretty bad also, or it was going to be bad because we didn't know. And I think the problem with most pandemic viruses, when they first start, there's no one on earth that's immune to them, and that allows it to spread really unrestricted. Right. So uh, there's uh, was a 60 Minutes report last night on Peter Dajak, who's, I think, been uh, on the show long ago, but was name checked on the show recently. Uh, he's a, a researcher who specializes in bats. In fact, we were trying to book him for a bat show that we mm-hmm. have coming up. Uh, but uh, at one point, they, they threw to some old tape of him and Scott Pelley. They're on some kind of boat circling around some arch- archipelago in Malaysia. And, and Dajak says that he worries that another SARS virus is going to show up. This is like almost 15 or more years ago. He's saying that another SARS virus is going to show up and go all over the world and be very hard to stop. He essentially describes exactly what's happening now. And I guess my sense listening to TWIV is that for you guys, it was really more a question of when than a question of if that we were going to come up against something like this. Is that fair? Absolutely fair. And it's there's no question there will be SARS 3 and 4 and 5 unless we do something. But yes, uh, the more our population grows, the more we encroach upon animals with their own crops of viruses, the more we're going to get them. And so, yeah, there'll be plenty of future pandemics. So um, 
I wanted to talk, I mean, one of the things that's interesting about TWIV is that you guys, you're virologists, you're microbiologists, you sort of looking at this thing at that level. But so many of the questions, so many of our questions that are pressing questions spill over uh, into clinical treatment, into epidemiology, you know, all of this stuff, you know, it, it, it won't just stay at the level that you guys are looking at. So you're getting asked a lot of other questions about this. Mm-hmm. And, and one thing that you've been saying lately that, and I think I figured it out listening to other things that were said on TWIV, but I think it's worth exploring here. There's kind of a catch-22, and the catch-22 goes something like this. The, um, some of these uh, anti, like an antiviral like remdesivir and, and whatever second and third generations come along after this, very effective in the early stages of the virus. Um, same, I think, with uh, humanized antibodies. Now, the problem is that that's not when people seek treatment, right? This is, these are drugs that have to be in, administered intravenously, uh, yeah, and people yes. aren't going in to get them. Maybe you could just flesh this out a little bit. Yeah, so remdesivir happens to be an antiviral that has to be given intravenously. Not all are. If you've ever had Tamiflu, right, you've taken it orally, it's a pill, and that's because it can get from your stomach to the blood. We call that bioavailability. And remdesivir is not bioavailable, so you have to stick it right in the vein uh, so it can reach all the tissues it has to. So that's a disadvantage. Uh, You could make derivatives that are bioavailable, and there's some of those that are around, but they're not as as advanced in their testing as remdesivir. And so, as I said on Twitter, you can't just go to a drugstore and get a prescription for an IV drug. (laughs) Typically, you have to go to a healthcare setting to get that. And so when do you go to a healthcare setting? When you're sick. So with COVID-19, you feel really bad. You have trouble breathing. That's usually the key that pushes people into a hospital. And by then, virus levels in you are already declining. And so an antiviral is not going to be terribly useful. I mean, it may help a bit, and that's what we see in the trials, but you really want to give it earlier. The problem is you're not very sick early in infection, and many people hardly get sick at all. So it's a bit of a conundrum, right? How do we treat people early enough? The ones that are going to get really sick and require hospitalization. Right. I'm guessing that one of the answers to this is happening right now without our knowing it. Uh, Obviously, there's concern in the White House right now about exposures and two um, infections. I'm guessing that what's happening right now is that they are having PCR tests every day for key officials, whether it's Trump and Pence or some of the other people there, certainly for Fauci and people like that. And if they're positive, they'd be started on remdesivir immediately, I would assume. That that might be where you're going to see this a drug like this or a humanized anti- antibody introduced right at the start. The only way you can do it right at the start is to be testing somebody all the time, right? That's exactly right. And, and the problem is, though, that's not a bad approach. It's better than waiting till they get really sick. The problem is we know that 80% of these infections are pretty mild. So do you want to give an antiviral to that many people. And, you know, the, the downside is uh, that you may select resistance. You will select resistant viruses and then the drug will be useless. So I, I, although I agree that testing people more widely is needed, it's something that we have failed to do for sure here in the U.S., I think uh, the, a better thing to do would somehow get an indicator of who's going to get really sick. And, you know, we have talked about that with Daniel Griffin, our clinician, but uh, we don't have those those answers yet. 
Yeah, I, I, which makes me wonder whether you guys think that the the diagnostic testing, this, let's park for a moment the serological mm-hmm. antibody testing, but the sort of uh, the early stage diagnostic testing, I, I wonder if it, you think it tells you what we really need to know. In other words, as far as I know, all you can really get, I could be wrong about this, is sort of positives and negatives and stuff like that. Either you, you're, infect, you're infected or you're not. What you really want to know is the thing that you just said. Are you going to get really sick? Um, and I'm wondering what you guys think about the information that comes back from the standard PCR-type diagnostic test. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It doesn't tell you if you're going to get really sick. It just tells you that you have some virus genetic material in in you at the time uh, the test was done. But, but you know, when you think about it, if you if it's wintertime and you have flu-like symptoms, you go to your doctor, they'll do a test right right there in the office. They'll say you have flu, go here's a prescription for Tamiflu. Go take it. And they don't distinguish on based on whether they think you're going to get sick or not. So maybe it's not a bad approach to doing that. I'm going to ask you a question which I think doesn't have an, a, a pat answer, but one of the things that's puzzling to those of us on the outside, and maybe puzzling to you on the inside, is, you know, if I take, I don't know, 10, 40-year-old white men and control for socioeconomic variables and anything else I can think of, uh, and they all get infected, um, the range of expressions of the disease will, you know, range from asymptomatic to mild symptoms to medium symptoms to on your beth- deathbed with a ventilator to dying. Do we understand, and my sense is that it's a bunch of different factors that play into these very different expressions and outcomes. Do we know what all those factors are? Why one person gets really sick and another person doesn't if they don't have different comorbidities or there isn't some obvious reason. Do we know what the less obvious reasons are? Well, in the end, it's your genetics, right? We we know that because we have limited experience with some viruses. We take people who get really serious influenza, really serious herpes encephalitis, and we sequence their genome. And sometimes we find changes that are consistent with them being more susceptible to virus infection. And so those kinds of studies are being done widely now for COVID-19 patients and presumably we'll, we'll learn more so we can answer your question. But that is really the key. Why you have this big range of responses. It's not the virus. It's the people. And sometimes it's associated things like your general health, your whether you have access to good care and so forth. But in the end, it's your genetics that's going to determine how you respond to an infection. The other thing that I hear is an, another variable might be the viral load or RNA load, I think is the term uh, that TWIV prefers, that that might, in other words, if I, th- there might be a different expression of the disease depending on whether somebody coughs right into my face as opposed to maybe I shake hands with somebody who shook hands with somebody else. Yeah, we've had a big debate on on the show. We have these arcs, and that's one of them where we talk about it episode after episode, whether you get a big inoculum makes a difference. Mm-hmm. And certainly in animals, you can change the viral inoculum and get different sorts of disease outcomes from mild to severe. But, you know, we can't do that experiment in people. And so we don't know. We assume it's so. Yes, if you get a lot of virus that you're going to maybe get a more rapidly progressing, maybe even as more serious because you could overwhelm your initial defenses, right? Uh, we suspect that, but we haven't been able to, to verify it. All right. We're talking to uh, Dr. Vincent Racaniello. He is the host of uh, This Week in Virology. We're going to take a very quick break. We're going to come back with more.
All right, so we're talking to Vincent Racaniello, a professor of microbiology and immunology at the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Columbia University. Um, if this conversation so far has intrigued you, you should be adding TWIV to uh, your podcast menu. That's This Week in Virology. He hosts it. Uh, he's got a whole whole kind of coterie of, of other uh, scientists who are regulars on it. Uh, and I just have to ask you this before we plunge back into the science here. But, um, I mean, I just assume, I don't know if you look at numbers for TWIV or not, but I assume business is booming. I mean, you must be adding a lot of listeners. I mean, people like me who are total novices to your audience. Oh, for sure. There's nothing like a pandemic to increase people's interest in viruses, right? Uh, I mean, I never expected many people to listen. We're kind of a niche product, right? But uh, yeah, we, we have gone up many, many fold in our in our listenership. And I assume once it's over, they'll leave. No, no, not me, not me. <laughs> I'm in it for the long haul. This Good. is not. I'm glad to hear not, it. This is not our last pandemic. Plus, this stuff gets really interesting. I mean, the more you know about it, the more interesting it gets. So, you know, one of the things you guys have had to deal with are these other kinds of outbreaks, outbreaks of misinformation. And sometimes the misinformation is just kind of an honest, I don't know, it's a moving target. There's a lot of stuff coming out. So, for example, over a series of episodes, you guys had to deal with the question of, should people be discontinuing certain blood pressure and cardiac medications because of their possible involvement with some of these downstream uh, effects of the disease, cytokine storms and hypercoagulation? Should people and you have ultimately, I think, decided with the help of Daniel Griffin, no, 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 stay on your meds. That's not right. Uh, but that's sort of like, you know, people trying to figure something out in real time. There are also these waves of disinformation, really. I mean, information that seems to be created for the purpose of, of minimizing the disease or claiming it came from some insidious source from a Chinese lab or something. I don't know. Do you want to say a little bit about sort of the role you guys have kind of been forced into uh, in terms of, you should pardon the expression, batting down some of these ideas? <laughs> yeah, this is a, a real problem for me. Every time there's an outbreak, there is always a conspiracy theory. So HIV-1, same thing. For years, people said it was made in a government lab. Uh, Zika, same thing. Ebola virus outbreak 2015 West Africa. Conspiracy made in a lab. I don't get it. And Alan Dove said it recently. I think he hit it. People just want to blame something because if you can't understand the science, you know, it's hard to understand the virology. Um, if you can't understand it, then blame someone for it. And I think that's what's happening uh, because we started back in January trying to explain why this is not made in a lab or released from a lab, why it came from nature. And I am just amazed that it keeps coming back. I get over 100 emails a day, every day, and about a quarter of them have to do with this issue. No matter how much we talk about it, people seem to want to buy it over the real science. And frankly, it really makes me sad because – in my view, science rules. Science explains everything. 
Right. I, I think the problem you're having, and we've dealt with this uh, on a bunch of episodes of this show, is a lot of the people you're hearing from have kind of departed from scientific consensus. So if you say, well, the scientific consensus of the, of the community of people who have devoted their lives to studying this, that it's impossible that this could have been made in the lab because it's just way too complicated. Uh, it just exceeds the ability of anybody on Earth to do something like this. And for you know reasons X, Y, and Z that you have, it won't matter because scientists and these are people who also might believe the Sandy Hook sh shooting was staged uh, or that mm. the earth is flat. There's actually some uh, a pretty substantial movement growing up around that. They've just decided that scientific orthodoxy is the opposite of proof. So I, I would assume you're never going to make a dent in, in this. I don't think so. I don't think so. In fact, someone wrote to me today and he said, look, if you tell me it couldn't be done, that's not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the alternative is for me to take a lot of time to go through it in very great detail, which we can't do. So, yes, I assume it'll never be solved. And, you know, what solved it for HIV was doing enough wildlife sampling so that they found the source of the virus in nature. Mm -hmm. That's what we have to do for this one, basically. That may solve it in the end. So uh, one of the things that um, we're dealing with, obviously, now is states loosening their restrictions uh, almost undoubtedly too early in most cases. Uh, there's still uh, emerging infections and emerging a lot in certain areas. But I've already started to think about October, which I keep telling people here in Connecticut, expect October to be a lot like April, um, that the pattern of these diseases seems to be a second wave. Certainly 1918 was like that. Um, maybe you could say a little bit about this. What, what are you thinking about or worrying about in terms of a second wave? Well, even though the numbers are going down now in terms of cases per day in, in many places, there are there's still virus out there. It's, it's in people and it, there will be all summer, most likely. And not many people have been infected yet, you know, maybe 20 to 30 percent at the most. And so there are a lot of other people who can be infected. And I think that's what's going to happen in the fall. I think the, the raising temperatures, the rising humidity, uh, they're all conspiring and our sheltering, of course, are all conspiring to reduce transmission. But I think in the fall, as it gets chillier and less humidity, that'll help the virus to, to transmit better. And we'll have a, another round. It's not unlike influenza, which comes back every fall and is with us for the winter uh, and then goes away in the spring. This will be like that until such time that we can uh, immunize most of the population. And obviously, as Redfield from the CDC was trying to say, if we have influenza and uh, COVID-19 at the same time, uh, that begins to overload the medical facilities uh, too and the capacity mm -hmm. that could take the system down in some places. And I think that's kind of a major worry. So, you know, there's two groups of people that I feel are constantly needing to be addressed. And one of them is the group that we were just alluding to, people who have decided to believe that this is not as serious as people say it is or that it, it comes from some bizarre, sinister source or something like that. And there's another group of people who were just terrified out of their minds right now. They're sort of on the opposite end from the minimizers. They're the maximizers. And I can't remember which, which mm -hmm. member of TWIV said this the other day. It might have been you. It might have been, I don't know. It's like the Beatles. I can't keep track of, <laughs> uh, of all of you guys. But um, 
somebody said, you know, you don't have to throw up your hands. We're not all going to get this. Uh, and, and maybe that's just worth spending a minute or two on from your point of view. This has been a very tough virus to address. We don't have immunities. We didn't have any medicines or, or vaccinations that are ready to go. But for people who are just terrified, what can you offer them? <laughs> well, I've always been saying since since the very first studies came out of China, you know, 80 percent of these infections are mild and that's good. Uh, which makes it unlikely that you're going to be in the serious 20% and to which uh, a number of people have said to me, that does not console me at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, well, it's better than 100% being serious, right? So I think I think you have to take that into account. And if you're less than 70, say, you're more likely to have a mild infection. You're not guaranteed, as we know, even kids can get very sick, but you're, you're going to be more likely to have a milder infection. And so it's only the more seriously older persons that have to worry. So I would say, make sure you don't go out and about and uh, increase your risks of getting it. I really think we can control this pretty well by testing and face masking, which we've done a bit, but not to the extent that we could. There are examples set by other countries that have done this very well, like South Korea. So I don't see the gloom and doom. uh, And I try and tell people, you know, you could be okay. And at any rate, we're going to have a vaccine at one point. So don't worry. And probably some decent therapies before that, too. Uh, all right. Vincent Racaniello, a, a host of This Week in Virology. Please tell all the other Twivers, the masters of Twiv, that your audience thanks you very much uh, and has come to rely on you. And I am one of those people. And thanks for being on this show today, too. Oh, I will tell them. And thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. All right. So uh, we're uh, done for today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. <laughs> Although I, we're going to be missing on the next two Thursdays, this Thursday and the following Thursday, because they're doing these uh, other specials in our spot. But uh, stay with us. Uh, we like talking to you. Retire, but we can't control when we will die. So let it be. <laughs> Corona isn't just another virus. And yet she doesn't seem to She does look kind of pale, and her breathing seems to fade. Very different from the rest of us. She's nothing like the rest of us. She's gonna be the...